Hello, and welcome to the third edition of Mugshots, the weekly portrait of some of the most powerful and influential figures in our modern world. I'm Michael Crick, and today we're taking a look at Jurgen Klopp, the German who's recognised as one of the greatest football managers on the planet, as well as being one of the most charismatic, and some might say eccentric. Every great winner is a bad loser. He was the obvious choice. I think as much as us choosing Jürgen was him choosing us. He doesn't live behind, you know, a fortress. He, he can be seen in the local pub, walking his dog on the beach. I wouldn't expect him to walk away from a challenge. I think he probably is at his best when things aren't easy or perfect. In the 1970s and 80s, the club that he now manages, Liverpool, dominated English and European football only to be eclipsed in the 1990s and the years after 2000 by their great rivals, Manchester United, and also by Arsenal and then Chelsea. Jurgen Klopp's biggest achievement has been to restore Liverpool almost to their former glory. But this season, they've stumbled badly for most of the autumn and winter, and last week they lost 5-2 at Anfield to their great European rivals, Real Madrid. What made it worse was they'd been two goals up early in the first half. I should perhaps declare an interest. I've been following Manchester United home and away for more than half a century, and 20 years ago I wrote an independent biography of the legendary United manager, Sir Alex Ferguson, called The Boss. But I'm one of many United fans who have a sneaking admiration for Jurgen Klopp and a fascination about him. And I'm joined today by two men who've watched Klopp much more closely than I have. Raphael Honigstein is the English football correspondent for the newspaper Betraga von Spiegel, as well as working for all sorts of other outlets. Raphael, if you had to sum Klopp up in just three adjectives, what would they be? They'd be driven, confident and uncompromising. And James Pearce is a football correspondent for The Athletic, the online sports website. He's spent the last decade covering the fortunes of Liverpool FC all across the globe. Hello, James. What are your three adjectives? I'll go passionate, loyal and compassionate. Interesting. So we've got a, a real variety of adjectives there. Now, a few days ago, I spoke to Ian Eyre, the chief executive who actually brought Jurgen Klopp from Germany to Liverpool back in October 2015. And I also spoke to his successor, Peter Moore, who was running the club when Klopp led them to their sixth European Cup victory in 2019. Jurgen famously says football, it's the most important of the least important things in life. I wouldn't expect him to walk away from a challenge. I think he probably is at his best when things aren't easy or, or, you know, or perfect. We'll hear a lot more from both gentlemen later. Now, Jürgen Norbert Klopp was born in June 1967 in the German city of Stuttgart and brought up in a village called Glatten in the Black Forest. Raphael, you wrote the book Klopp, Bring the Noise. Tell us more about his family background. He, I think, grew up in the perfect post-West German environment. The southwest of Germany is fairly wealthy. People are blessed with nice surroundings. He would go skiing in the winter because they're nearby mountains. He'd go swimming in the local Lido in the summer. 
and then spend the rest of the time playing football and tennis, which was all on his doorstep. So very idyllic, uh, loving home, the mother, the housewife looking after the family, the dad who was a traveling uh, salesman uh, for a company making plugs and just having a protected, very nice childhood with the one exception that the fa- the father was absolutely crazy about sport and drove every single of his children, but Klopp particularly being the only boy, uh, close to madness by drilling him in all sorts of sports. He would take him to ski, he would take him to play tennis, and he wasn't one of those parents that said, oh, you know, let's see if you like it. He would actually say, no, you have to play, you have to ski, and he would serve and volley and, you know, win every game 6-0, 6-0 against a five-year-old Jurgen Klopp until he managed to return a single ball. And uh, and kindle his competitive juices that way. That's probably a mixed metaphor, but you know what I mean. His father had wanted to be a, a footballer himself, but uh, didn't become a pro. And and uh, Jurgen joined several clubs and then ended up with Mainz, where he started off as a striker uh, and then became a right back, I believe. But I think he recognised early on he was likely to be better at coaching than at playing. I think he he said something like, "I have." Uh, I had a fourth division feet, but a first division mind. I think he undersold his footballing progress a little bit because he was a very decent, very, I wouldn't say successful, but very decent and long-standing second division player. So he played at a decent level. The problem was that all of his footballing career was place, was spent at places where you either fight against relegation or, uh, and usually it was both, you weren't making any money. So it was a very precarious existence. So I think very early on, he realized he needed some kind of escape. He needed some kind of option to fall back upon when he was in his 30s because he wasn't in a position to retire after that years in the second German division in the 90s and just say, fine, I'm going to have my six rental properties and a villa in Marbella. He was basically living on the breadline still. And that's when I think the interest from coaching came into. And also because Mainz themselves as a club had such limited financial means that players, especially who were a little bit more veteran than him, tried to almost do their thing to help the team. And he became a real important person for whoever was the coach at the time to help them get better and do the most that they have with their very limited resources. Now, he spent seven years as, as manager of Mainz. And then um, seven years at Dortmund. And in both cases, he took them to new levels. He did. Uh, Mainz were a byword for um, for underachievement. They were just about hanging on in the second division every single year. And suddenly uh, they have a coach before him, Wolfgang Funk, who, who took them to a, a much better position that was suddenly playing for promotion, but he couldn't sustain it. And then once Klopp takes over, he rescues them from relegation. And the very next year, they're already playing for promotion. And at the third attempt, they actually make it to the Bundesliga for the first time ever in the history. Mainz is not a football town. They're always in the shadow of Frankfurt. It's a town known for the carnival, but not for the football. But suddenly something happens. And this is a team that now play in the Bundesliga. And what's more, they're actually not fighting against relegation. They're in the top half of the table with him in charge with a minuscule budget and people beginning to realise that this guy has got something special about him. And then Dortmund in the Ruhr, uh, he was seven years there as well, and, and, and twice won the league with record points totals and so on. Yeah, record uh, at the time. Um, it's since been broken by, by Bayern, but he managed to, again, 
completely overperform in terms of their, their budget. Dortmund in 2005 had nearly gone bankrupt. Six years later, they're German champions uh, with a very young team, with a very young charismatic manager who's playing a system, a style that is very revolutionary at the time. No one's really playing that pressing game. No one's really got the energy. And it fits very well because Dortmund is a blue-collar city and this team have a really strong work ethic. And it kind of comes together in what we call in German Gesamtkunstwerk, a sort of holistic uh, work of art in the nicest uh, footballing sense. And he wins titles and he very nearly wins the Champions League as well in 2013. The impact cannot be overstated. Yes, Dortmund had won trophies before. They're not a small club, but he picked them up from where they were in, in mid-table and playing very dull football, all things that Liverpool fans, I think, in 2015 could really relate to. And he took them and he built them into a real powerhouse again. Now, James, Klopp uh, joined Liverpool in October uh, 2015. And at that stage, Liverpool hadn't won the league, had they, for, what, 25 years um, Klopp had had a break from football. He'd left. Uh, he, he'd resigned from Dortmund rather than you know. He never he never got the sack from either of his German clubs. What was the impact at, at Anfield that first season? Well, I, I was outside the the Hope Street Hotel in Liverpool City Centre on the day that Jurgen Klopp's people carrier swept around the corner, and he went in there and and signed his contract. And I'd I'd never seen a a managerial appointment anywhere really be greeted with such excitement and fervour and such universal acclaim. And you couldn't help but stand there thinking, how does this guy possibly live up to, to the hype? Because, you know, he, he was put on this pedestal as this guy is is going to be the, the saviour. Um, you know, certainly Liverpool fans had, had admired from afar his, um, his personality and his and his brand of exciting attacking football at Dortmund um, and thought, yeah, this this guy is exactly what we need. And certainly for the ownership group, um, Fenway Sports Group, who are based in Boston, they would have appointed Klopp at the end of the previous season if he'd been available. But at that point, he was pretty clear he wanted to take some time off. And it was, you know, Liverpool were in a mess, an absolute mess, you know, in mid-table. The wheels had come off spectacularly, you know, having come so close to winning the Premier League under Brendan Rodgers in 2013-14. Then they'd lost Luis Suarez. They'd reinvested that money really badly. And there was just, everyone was on a downer. You know, it was, Anfield was a really, really miserable place to go. And and the players' body language in games reflected that. You know, when the chips were down, shoulders hunched and and you thought, you know, the Klopp, I think, at that opening press conference described himself as a, as a football romantic. And I think what appealed to him was, you know, if he could resurrect the fortunes of such a footballing giant as Liverpool, that it would resonate a lot more than maybe if he went somewhere where he had untold riches from the start. And it's, I mean, success was uh, very quick, wasn't it? I mean, Liverpool got to the uh, the Europa League final that year, but lost to Seville uh, 3-1. And I, I was listening to Jordan Henderson the other day talking about Klopp's reaction afterwards that instead of letting all the players go off to bed and, and feel depressed, he insisted they had to have a party <laughs> and, and all get, you know, all drunk and dance and so on. It seems typical, typical Klopp. Yeah, it was. It was. And um, you know, that was very much his mindset from the start. When he came in, it was, I think, under the previous manager, there'd been a lot of, you know, moaning about lack of money for transfers and, you know, and everything that was wrong. And Klopp basically came in and said, no, no, it's a clean slate for everyone. One of his quotes that I love was, you know, he said, he said, I'm responsible for the defeats. The players are responsible for the wins. 
And you know, he, he took a lot of the pressure off them. And, and Liverpool did exceed all expectations. You know, they got to the League Cup final. They got to the Europa League final in that first season. You know, when he hadn't, I mean, that was purely with someone else's group of players. You know, he hadn't brought anyone in. Um, and yeah, he grabbed the microphone in the hotel in Basel after that that defeat to Sevilla and was singing songs and, and got everyone going and made them say, you know, yes, you feel terrible now, but this is just the start of the journey. There'll be more finals and there'll be finals that we come back to and win. You know, even, even in his first Christmas at Liverpool, you know, Liverpool lost 3-0 at Watford on the day they were having a Christmas party at Formby Hall and all the players were convinced the party was getting cancelled because it was like, how can they, how can it possibly go ahead from here? And Klopp sent them all a text message saying, you know, whatever we do, we do together. And the only rule that night was that no one was allowed to go home before 1am. He was very cluey, I think, in terms of building that spirit and togetherness from the start. And that's always been one of the big things for him. You know, the fact that English is his second language, he has this remarkable knack of being able to find the right words at the right times and, and, and get the best out of people. Now, Ian Eyre, the, the chief executive when, when Klopp was recruited, says that uh, after they got rid of Brendan Rodgers, there was nobody else really in consideration. He was the obvious choice around that time. We obviously, as you do with all appointments, we did our due diligence. And, you know, Jürgen was a standout candidate from day one. I think he's absolutely perfect uh, for them. But, um, but yeah, he was our number one target at that time and very grateful that he agreed to come. Tell us about when you first met him. So the first time I met Jürgen, we, we, as is the case, uh, certainly in the Premier League, you know, the amount of media attention on everything you do is, is extreme, to say the least. And so we were really keen not to have uh, a well-informed dialogue going on about what we were doing. We decided uh, Jürgen was travelling with Ulla, his wife. He, he was in the United States, so we thought that was a more obvious place to try and to some degree be more incognito particularly for him and obviously at that point in time anywhere I went people were people were checking what flight I was getting on and um so so we ended up meeting somewhat covertly in a law office in central New York despite all the odds we managed to pull it off we met uh, it was incredible to meet him he's you know what you see with Jürgen is what you get kind of warm and easy to deal with and easy to talk to, makes you feel very relaxed around him. It's interesting that, that, you know, even from that first day, he struck me as one of those people is if you walk into a room, however you're feeling, whatever your mood is, when you leave, it almost always is a more buoyant and positive one when you've spent a couple of hours with Jürgen. You've described him as being almost like a prophet. What did you mean by that when you said that? Well, I always think that there's that old phrase, horses for courses, and Liverpool Football Club, you know, as you know, I kind of grew up in Liverpool, it's been my team my whole life, and it's a very special and unique city where people have to kind of fit into Liverpool rather than the other way around. You know, I have the accent, and so you hope that you speak the language, and I, and I think he's quite prophetic. In None of it for with him is ever contrived or he doesn't say things for effect. He doesn't say things to the media for effect. He doesn't court favour or other such things. He's just Jürgen. And I just find some of the the things he says right in the right moment 
that are very natural are just almost prophetic. You know, if you were, if he had a PR agent sat next to him, half the stuff he says, I think you'd feel was coming from some PR playbook, but it's always very natural with him. And I think he would say stuff and you'd just think, wow, you know, I wish every everybody could be that naturally gifted at saying the right thing. I think that became very evident, certainly to me and some others, you know, a year or so into his deal where, where you know, I would have other people, whether it was other CEOs of other clubs or owners of other clubs or or other fans of other teams who might be friends or whatever, say to me, wow, what a great fit he is. What a great person. You know, I don't, some of them would be like, I hate Liverpool, but 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 you have an awesome manager. And, and I think that's how it plays out, that he's such a great human being as well as being an outstanding football coach. I think as much as us choosing Jürgen was him choosing us, you know, he's very single-minded about that. And I think he's on record as saying there were only, you know, when he took his year out for his sabbatical, he, he did absolutely, he said to me, and I've heard him say it publicly before, that there were, there were only a couple of teams in the world that he would have come back that early for, and, and Liverpool was one of them. First of all, he's very collaborative. Um, I think in the modern game, a lot of older school coaches or managers believe that the manager has to make every single decision and you know be involved in everything. Jurgen's very focused on what he is good at, what he feels he needs to focus on, and he you know welcomes the input of other people like sort of recruitment team and other people. And I think that's personally, I think that's a refreshing and b very important in the modern game. Um, secondly. You know, we'd gone through that very difficult period from sort of 2008, 9, 10, you know, with the ownership issues and and then trying to win back everybody through the next few years, you know, whether it was on the field or off the field. There'd been a lot of damage done to the football club and its relationships. It's hard to rebuild trust and relationships and keep that going internally with staff and others. And he immediately became this person who was approachable and warm to everyone. He, you know, he treats everybody in the organization in a similar way in the club, around the club, around the city, suddenly felt this warmth, you know, kind of, and not to draw up too much of a parallel too soon, but kind of the similar relationship that Shankly had with the fans in Liverpool. He started to feel very early, even though in those early days, it maybe wasn't said. And then he really got involved. He, he was interested in other areas of the business and the club, whether it was how do we choose our kit and training kit and other things. Like, I think he wants to make sure that everything is first class and that the players feel that they're getting the best they can get. The other thing that everybody recognised was how important the fair and equal treatment of all his staff and team around him, whether it's you know Carol and Carolyn in the in the servery, in the kitchen, or whether it's, you know, the guy who cuts the grass or whoever it is, he really, he really shows a genuine interest that everybody, um, that everybody gets treated well. And those things just breed and, and are infectious. Peter Moore, the next chief executive of the club, also found that Klopp seemed ready-made for Liverpool, both the football club and the city itself. I mean, I think you said that he's a, a scouser at heart. What do you mean by that? 
you know, his roots are, are very working class. He's a socialist, a liberal, very much a man of the people, as I would often accuse him of being slightly un-German with his tactile nature, his sense of humor, his, his over-the-top personality, but uh, loved people, loves being around people, has that warmth about him, gregariousness, welcoming nature that has served any any manager of any group of people, whether it's sports or whether it's corporate, that you can bring people together, embolden them, and get them pointing towards the North Star. And he has all those skills in bucket loads. Uh, and that was evident from the first day I ever met him. What else did he do that turned Liverpool around and made Liverpool so successfully just within a few years? The players are important and, and having a team around him, which he would to this day defend and give the credit, um, you know, his backroom staff, very similar to the concept. And he was very familiar with the boot room, the Shankly, Paisley, Roy Evans, Joe Fagan, Reuben Bennett era of a group of people, not just Bill Shankly, but a group of people that all pulled together in the same direction, all understood what the fans wanted and needed. And he went out and got players that fit that bill. Hardworking, no prima donnas, uh, as has been well recorded, uh, found value in, in players that, that had snuck under the radar for some other clubs and believed in his, himself and his staff to get the best out of them, whether that's a Mohamed Salah, obviously a Sadio Mane, Bobby Firmino coming out of Hoffenheim. You know, all of these players flourished once they were inside the Liverpool way, the, the, the Jurgen Klopp version of the Liverpool way. On top of that, he engaged with the fans in his press conferences, with the charitable work he does around town. He lives in Formby, is out and about. He, he doesn't live behind, you know, a fortress. He, he can be seen in the local pub, walking his dog on the beach. I'm very much seen and embraced what Liverpool is uniquely all about, which is everybody pulling together. Like the banner on the cop says, unity is strength. And uh, Jürgen totally bought into that. And I think that it was as much the opportunity to be able to deliver for a fan base that he had researched and knew well, and that he felt really reflected uh, very much the same as the fan base he'd left uh, about a year ago previously in Dortmund. Raphael, Peter Moore there compared the Liverpool fan base to Dortmund's. Are the two clubs comparable? I think there are lots of parallels. The history of those clubs, uh, the working class roots, the city themselves. Um, Dortmund is a one club city. Uh, I'm not sure Liverpool uh, <laughs> listeners will agree that that is the case. But uh, otherwise, there is the same kind of passion stroke madness. Football is the number one topic. With it comes a certain demand to have a certain I don't want to call it entertainment, but a certain experience almost. And what Klopp did is to deliver that experience in the ground. It became fun again to go to Dortmund games. It became a communal experience again. The team, the fans were sort of enhancing their own explosiveness almost um, by football and a, and a response that all came together. And I think that's why a lot of people, me included, when Klopp was mention at first as a possible candidate for Liverpool felt that this is exactly the right guy because he got it. He understood from his background at Dortmund what it needed to really tune into that passion of the local fan base. What's interesting is that I mean, Liverpool is a very working class city, of course, 
And sometimes it says that Klopp is from a working class background. But from the description you gave earlier, it seems to me it, that it was a more of a, a lower middle class background. That it, but nonetheless, he's he's managed to fit into Liverpool. Um, I mean, maybe these class differences are more important to us English people than they are to you Germans. But I think what he did, and a lot of people were surprised when he did it, because Swabians and the people from the Ruhr, they have very little in common. But what he managed to do is, through his intelligence, through his empathy, is, I think, to understand what people there needed, just as he had understood in Mainz, which is different, but created some similar passions from a much lower base. It's his... I think, ability to tune into the minds of the people that he works with and understands their needs, understands their problems, their worries. And that makes him such an important manager beyond the footballing technology almost. It is the ability to be almost sort of a football psychiatrist or psychologist, depending on how bad the case is. Um, And I think that is something that people in Dortmund, they're kind of almost convinced he is one of theirs. The same that people in in Liverpool treat him as a scouser, even though he couldn't be more removed from being a scouser if you look at his upbringing in the Black Forest. Now, James, tell us about his impact on the team in terms of the the existing players he found and then those he brought in. Yeah, I think it really stark the upturn in the fortunes of players who had been much maligned previously. I think someone like Roberto Firmino had arrived um, under Brendan Rodgers the, the previous summer and had really struggled in his opening months at the club. And then you know, suddenly Klopp played him through the middle you know, as, 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 the, as the kind of false number nine, as we call it. And it proved to be an absolute revelation. And you, you, you could almost go through the team in terms of players who had struggled, suddenly found a, an extra gear. And, you know, you could feel that, that ability to energise the dressing room and get more out of players and, and and just lift the weight off their shoulders. I think a lot of players, when he walked in, were kind of weighed down by the pressure and expectation of being a Liverpool player. And there'd been so much negativity around the place, certainly over the over the previous 18 months. And then right through to, you know, the development in the young players, I think it's kind of twofold, really. You know, you look at the recruitment was incredibly shrewd. You know, the the double act that he struck up with Michael Edwards, the sporting director, in terms of you know, players of the calibre of Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah, right through to you know, Andy Robertson plucked from relegated Hull City, you know, Jeannie Wijnaldum from relegated Newcastle. You know, this wasn't shopping at the top end of the European market. This was... This was incredibly clever in terms of pinpointing exactly what was needed and finding value, which is not easy. And then the other side was developing what he already had, you know, a a very talented young player and someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold and turning him into the most dynamic, exciting right back in in European football. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, for, for years, it was a constant story of progression. You know, there weren't there weren't too many kind of bumps in the road from you know from the from the two cup finals effectively with someone else's team in 15 16 to qualifying for the Champions League in 16 17 to you know reaching the Champions League final in 2018 in Kiev and um you know that was it's probably difficult now to really appreciate it because we've now become used to Liverpool back competing for the biggest prizes and winning them but when he walked in you know Liverpool had only played Champions League football once in the previous six seasons you know, this was a, a team that had fallen on hard times and he, he just kept raising the bar. Trying to turn doubters to believers was the line he came out with on his first day in the job. And 
it didn't take long for everyone to believe that, that he that he was the man to to bring the glory days back. And for three seasons, you had Liverpool and Manchester City way up there at the top, breaking all the points records. And, you know, these were two teams that were uh, on a level way beyond what anybody had ever seen, I think, in English football, certainly in, in, in modern times. But is the can Klopp be a bastard? I mean, is there an element of fear at all about him in the way that there obviously is with with certain other managers like Sir Alex? Yes, he, he certainly can. I think probably that at times there's probably been too much kind of emphasis on the on the hugs and everything else and the the lovable side and the you know the beaming smile and you know he hasn't got to where he has done by providing pats on the back all the time. He can be ruthless. And I think you only have to look at the way in which he dealt with Mamadou Sacco was a, a central defender that he inherited at Liverpool. I think that sent out a real message to the players that um, you know, Sacco was was late for a team flight to a preseason tour to America, didn't turn up for some treatment sessions, Klopp didn't like his attitude. He never played for the club again. He can be ruthless. And I think you know, I, mem- I remember Christian Benteke, another player that Klopp inherited who didn't last long, but he said he's like a friend, but he's certainly not your best friend. And I think that's always the relationship he's had with players. You know, it's it's kind of it, as long as you give me exactly what I want, which is a hundred percent unwavering dedication and commitment, then I've got your back. But if you don't, you won't be here for very long. You know, you talk to any of those players who were there before Klopp, and the demands placed on them was suddenly cranked up massively. You know, there was a reason why Liverpool suddenly suffered so many muscle injuries in his first season because the players were running 12, 15 kilometres more in training every single week because you know, his brand of, of attacking football, which of course has dropped off a bit this season. But you know, it, this gag impressing is all about that desire to hunt in packs and win the ball back as soon as you lose it as high up the field as possible. I think sometimes that kind of smiling, happy side of Klopp can be overplayed because there's certainly another side. Yeah, and indeed you yourself experienced uh, the other side of Klopp uh, a couple <laughs> of weeks ago. Let's listen to what happened. Liverpool, they've conceded more Premier League goals in the opening five minutes of matches than any other side this season. And Klopp, well, he wasn't too happy in his post-match news conference when asked by, well, why that was happening by athletic journalist James Pearce. Do you think it is a mentality thing? Is it, does it make you look at how you prepare for games? The fact that they can then start the game so slowly and get a whole week on the training field? It's very really difficult to talk to you, if I'm 100% honest. I would prefer not to do that. You know why? For all the things you wrote, so if somebody else wants to ask that question, then I answer it, and if not, you ask it. So that was the press conference on Sky Sports News on the 6th of February after Liverpool's 3-0 defeat at Wolves. James, what happened there? I mean, what did you do wrong? <laughs> well, as, as you can imagine, that in the immediate aftermath of that, I was racking my brain, kind of think, trying to think of what I had written that might have might have riled him to that degree. No, I was subsequently told it was actually an article published on a completely different publication the day before that had actually upset him. And I think then, you know, someone else had, had, had linked it to an article on The Athletic written by another one of my colleagues, you know, way, way earlier on in the season. And um, so, yeah, I was, in the, I was in the firing line. I think it was some criticism of... Andreas Kornmeier is his fitness coach and the suggestions that maybe he'd become too influential or powerful. It's not something that I've written when things are going badly. I think you know, going back to what we talked about earlier, Klopp is very much, you know, if you have to blame someone, blame me. I'll take the hit for this. 
And I think he didn't like the suggestions in some quarters that there were issues with some of his staff and all the rest of it. He, he was That was what he was reacting to. Um, I just happened to be in the firing line, despite the fact that I hadn't actually been responsible for it. I think it feeds into that emotion. It made for a rough few days on social media, but I didn't, I didn't take it personally and subsequently spoken to him and there's no lingering issues on, on that front. Every great winner is a bad loser. And I think, you know, sometimes when you see the way that Klopp reacts after defeats, you can see that because it, it hurts him that badly. And I don't think he's probably experienced probably since, you know, those, the, the early on in that last season at Dortmund and what he's experienced recently in terms of so many punishing setbacks in, in quick succession at Liverpool. That was all that emotion and, and hurt not being able to find immediate answers to the array of problems he's been facing kind of boiled over in that moment. Now, unusually in football, Klopp's been keen to express his political views. And I asked Peter more about this uh, and whether the, the club ever found it difficult when Klopp speaks out on politics, in particular, of course, around the time of the uh, the Brexit referendum in 2016, when Klopp uh, very vociferously backed Remain. You mentioned his politics, his political commitment, and of course it came out uh, very firmly against Brexit back in uh, the 2016 referendum. Tell us more about that, and and you know his hinterland, the, the you know the side to Jurgen Klopp that isn't football. Jurgen famously says football it's the most important of the least important things in life, and 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 he's right. You know we we live and die for our teams. We always have done, but there's other things in life, particularly in the world we live in today. And Jurgen is incredibly worldly. No disrespect to football managers as a whole, but this is a man that, you know, I would be on a team plane and, and he'd have his earphones in listening to something. And then when we're landing, I said, what were you listening to? He said, I'm listening to this podcast on 14th century history and really deep historical European history, the formation of, of kingdoms. And, and he'd go into it. And this is, this is not what you expect. And again, I'm not disrespecting the average football manager, but that's who he is. And you see it, Michael, in his press conferences. This is a, a deeply thoughtful human being that, first of all, takes other human beings much before him as regards taking care of them. He is you know, a liberal socialist, I'd probably describe him as, but he believes in the collective. And, and, and I don't mean that in a communist way, but it goes all the way back to, to those Shankly ear, you know, where everybody, and I can see Shankly doing this, we all work together, pass and move, pass and move, pass and move. And, you know, he is very much, you go to his office, there's a photograph of Shankly always in his office, and he is very reflective of the history of Liverpool, not only the club, but the city itself. He was very anti-Brexit because it's breaking the collective of everybody coming together to work together for the greater good. And that's exactly his philosophy off the pitch as it is with his team tactics on the pitch. I mean, people in football don't get involved in politics very often. Were the people at the club who, who said to him, look, tone it down a bit, we can't be seen to be taking sides? Not really. I mean, again, telling Jürgen to do something or say something, you know, not easy. It's not pandering to the fans, but this is what that this fan base believes in. And, you know, socialism, everybody working together, um, you know, the history of Liverpool, both recent and past, is well known. He is very much a believer in this socialist ideal and, and nobody at the club would ever stop him from talking because he puts it in football terms a lot of the time. He's smart enough not to get deeply embroiled in political battles outside of football. But what I've always admired is he can, he can relate 
politically to what's going on to the pitch. What is interesting about this, Raphael, is that, I mean, Klopp uh, says he's a socialist. Uh, he also says he's a, a committed Christian. Uh, and in fact, I think on one occasion said that um, the, the trouble is he, because he's a Christian, he has to admit that other people are entitled to win as well, uh, which you wouldn't get uh, certain other managers saying. But it seems to me that this is all part of this all fits together in the, the portrait of Klopp, that it's that his socialism, his Christianity, his sense of community, collaboration, solidarity is all part of his philosophy. It is, although I would hesitate to call him a socialist. I think this is more more sort of a West German brand of social democracy. Social democracy, right. But he said he could never write, vote for a right-wing party, I think. Correct, so. correct. But that doesn't make you a socialist. That just makes no, you maybe no. a decent human being, <laughs> I would venture. But he is very Christian. He does talk about his faith a lot. I think it helps him sometimes balance the madness of football, puts things into perspective, helps him, I think, connect with people, makes him see the bigger picture. And I think he does have, shall we say, a strong sort of uh, collective streak. He fits well into both Liverpool and Dortmund, who are cities that have that ethos to begin with because of their uh, background, because of the, you know, the demographics and the, uh, the type of industry that these cities were involved with. And it's not put upon. It's something he believes in. I think actually he took a long time in England before he was confident enough in his own voice to talk about these things. I think he was careful not to get involved too much in the debate. Later on, when more people got interested and he felt more secure in his own view and also his ability to express it in English, which which is important, I think, to him, he then became more outspoken and put his flag firmly uh, firmly down. Of course, again, it helps, I think, if you are in a city that by and large backs your views, where you're not the outlier, you're not the strange prophet uh, saying things that nobody else thinks. Again, it is in tune with his constituency, if you want to use a political term, uh, because most fans feel the same way. What do you think has gone wrong this season, Raphael? I mean, it, it, you know, it, Liverpool could struggle to get back into Europe, which is extraordinary when you think that they were, you know, in the European Cup final only last season and the last three or four years that they've had. I don't think there is an easy answer for this. I think maybe you have to almost turn this thing on its head and say what went right for so long and have the things that gone right been achieved in a way that only took a deviation of a few percentage points in the other direction to, I don't want to say unravel, but go badly quite quickly. A team that plays with a lot of intensity, needs fresh players, doesn't really do well with players that are perhaps tired or slightly over the hill when it comes to their performances. Uh, Have Liverpool reached a point where they needed more of a rejuvenation perhaps that they themselves realised? Midfield is an area that a lot of people talk about. I would have seen, would have liked to see another midfielder come in. Nobody could believe that a team playing to win all four trophies and getting to in, within a whisk of getting all four trophies would then struggle as much as they did. But I think it is more explicable if you understand that Liverpool always sort of live on the edge with everything they do. His football is 100% or nothing. And if that is your take, when it's not 100%, perhaps the drop-off is steeper than it would be with other teams who kind of have a habit of winning at 85, 90% and have enough, kind of just always sort of find a way of winning. I think this Liverpool team are much more extreme. And that's why I think you see these higher highs and perhaps lower lows than you would have expected before.
James, I was talking to um, a businessman yesterday, a, a pretty successful businessman, and he said that his specialism was coming into a company, turning it around, getting it back on its feet again. When it was back on its feet, he then left because he was no good at, at static. You know, he's no good at just sort of keeping things going as they were. His, his job was to, to revive. And I wonder whether Klopp's that kind of manager, that he, he, he's very good at, you know, as he did at Mainz and Dortmund and at Liverpool, but it's harder when he's just got to keep things going. It's also incredibly hard when you're not really competing on a level playing field. And I think that's what puts into context Klopp's achievements at Liverpool, you know, winning the Champions League, winning the Premier League, ending that 30-year wait, winning the Club World Cup, making Liverpool you know, absolute heavyweight to Europe again with three finals in the space of five seasons, whilst trying to compete with you know, clubs who are, have got the financial backing of you know, nation states behind them. And indeed who are accused of uh, you know, breaking the rules in, in, in the money they've spent in the case of uh, Manchester City. Exactly. I, I wouldn't go along with the idea that kind of, you know, I, I suppose Michael Edwards, the sporting director, left coming up to a year ago and you know maybe he thought you know you go out you know you've you've overseen all this success go out at the top but I don't think you know I, I think for Klopp he feels such a bond with the club I mean it was the owners expected him to to, to walk away in 2024 when his his previous contract was up um you know they were absolutely over the moon last April when he turned around and said actually I'm willing to stay around till 2026 because he you know he wants to he, he wants to build like an, another great team and i think that's why it's so fascinating now when you when you look at what is going to happen because yes it's doom and gloom at the moment but you know I, I don't go along with this idea that he's now in charge of a team in terminal decline he, he's actually in charge of a team in transition you know he, he's built one iconic team that liverpool fans will remember forever and he's in the process of trying to build another one and i think you know, that's why he's been adamant throughout this season that he's got the energy, he's got the passion to keep going, that he wants to oversee this rebuild this summer. And it's not a complete sweeping rebuild. I think sometimes in modern football, you know, it, there's such knee-jerk reactions. It's not, Liverpool don't need to get rid of 10 or 12 players. They need two elite midfielders and probably, you know, one elite centre-back. I think you add three players to that team and I think you get a, a very, very, you know, different Liverpool next season. That's the fascination now. Can he go again? Can he can he come back from the bruising succession of setbacks this season? And you know, of course, between now and the rest of the season, the biggest priority is trying to ensure he can salvage Champions League qualification because, you know, for a club that relies on a self-sustaining business model, you know, the money generated from the Champions League is absolutely crucial. And also in terms of, you know, attracting the best talent who want to be playing, at the, you know, in the elite club competition. I think it's quite a unique situation because I think most managers having, you know, Liverpool have lost 11 games already this season would be under serious pressure. But Jurgen Klopp's not because he's got a huge amount of credit in the bank and, you know, the vast, vast majority of Liverpool fans trust him to put right what's gone wrong. Raf, perhaps I'm being mischief making here, but... I mean, what happened in Germany, he was seven years at Mainz. Towards the end, things went down a bit and he left. He was seven years at Dortmund and at the end, things weren't so good and he left. He's now had seven years at Anfield. I mean, is it possible he will just give it up and walk out? It is always possible, but he has never just 
given up and walked out. I think with Mainz, it was a case of he had outgrown the club. He would have had a chance to leave earlier. After seven years, he decided to leave and, and make the next step. It was a similar case with Dortmund. Yes, things didn't. And that, well, by their standards, they only finished seventh. But he had offers to go the year before to Man United. And there was a meeting, for example. I don't get the sense that he feels, nor the club at this moment, that this story is over. Uh, my sense is that this year's relative um, disappointing season and the lack of success will actually make him more determined to have another great season uh, next year and not leave on these terms. That's the feeling I'm getting. Uh, of course, his contract runs till 2026. He's never not fulfilled a contract. He's never walked out uh, on a club uh, without the club being fine with that. So I don't see him just packing up the bags. But it is possible that after another two years, he'll say, you know what? It'll be then 10 or 11 years. I think that might be enough. I don't want to may, may, maybe stay till 2026. Maybe he'll leave a year earlier. Who knows? But I just don't see we've reached that point yet. I think he'll be more determined to put this right in the, in the, in the short term. I asked Ian Eyre about this and, and, and whether he thought that Klopp might decide that his future lies outside Liverpool. I think Jürgen, when he commits to something, is 100% in. He's all in. Um, I'd be shocked, I would say, if he was to walk away. I'm sure he'll leave at some point because everybody does, right, at some point. But I I wouldn't expect him to walk away from a challenge. I think he probably is at his best when things aren't easy or, or you know, or perfect. Um, he seems to thrive on taking, you know, if you look at the team that we had and what he did and what he built with, you know, himself and other people, um, he thrived in that environment of, you know, taking average or good and making it great. And if we're average or good or Liverpool are average or good this year, then he'll be thriving and committed and 100% down for, for making it great again. And for Peter Moore, Klopp remains the best man for the job when it comes to leading Liverpool. There's nobody better, even now, during the, and, and especially now, during these difficult times for Liverpool than Jurgen Klopp to be able to drag us out of the tough time. And, and the season is not yet lost. Peter Moore there. Well, Raphael Honigstein and James Pearce, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Bye. Thanks a lot. Fascinating discussion about a fascinating man. And it will be interesting over the rest of this season to see if Klopp can revive Liverpool or will he perhaps decide his time is up and go and find another job? Maybe outside football altogether. I'm Michael Crick. Until next week's mugshot, goodbye. Mugshots was written and produced by Michael Crick and Jack Gerbertson. Additional research by Matilda Walters. Audio production by Robin Lieburn and me, Alex Reese. Music by Jade Bailey. The group editor for Podmasters is Andrew Harrison. Mugshots is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.